What's going on, everybody, and welcome to the Colorado Outdoors podcast. I'm your host, John Livingston. As we quickly wrap up 2023, we didn't want the end of the year to arrive without an episode that really celebrates the 50th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act. Established in 1973, the Endangered Species Act provides special protections to more than 1,300 species throughout the nation. Here in Colorado, there are eight federally endangered species and nine more federally threatened species that occur in our state. Here at Colorado Parks and Wildlife, we work closely in collaboration with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to manage threatened and endangered species and the habitats that they rely upon. The primary goal is to make sure species populations remain healthy and vital so they can be delisted. CPW strives to take proactive measures to keep species populations healthy enough not to need this legal protection. Our agency works closely with private landowners, county governments, non-governmental organizations, and others to protect and improve habitat, conduct research, and work together to promote species productivity. Today, we're going to be talking with recently retired Species Conservation Coordinator Tina Jackson, who has personally spent a career working with endangered and threatened species right here in Colorado. All right, also on today's show, I'm pleased to be joined by fellow Colorado Parks and Wildlife Public Information Officer Kara Van Hoos. Kara, thrilled to have you join us. Thanks, John. I'm excited to be here. And like you, I'm a public information officer with CPW and glad to be part of the communications team covering Denver, Boulder, and the Fort Collins area. Yeah, you've got a great area out there in the Northeast region. I'm down here in the Southwest region. It's fun to get this PIO team united to finally co-host one of these shows. Um, looking forward to chatting with a guest that you know a lot about today. Yeah, Tina's uh, a character and certainly one of the most interesting people within CPW. And she recently retired, but had kind of an awesome job while she was here. All right, it's time to introduce today's guest, Tina Jackson. Tina, thanks so much for taking time to join us. And we're so sorry to pull you back so quickly after your recent uh, retirement here from CPW. Happy to be back. Yeah. Hi, Tina. Thank you for taking time away from your busy retirement schedule to speak with us today. And I think you may have had the best job that exists in Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Would you agree? I I had a very good job. I think um, there are so many wonderful jobs within the agency and um, I couldn't do them all, but I was pretty happy with the one I ended up with. Yes. Yes. And as we recognize 50 years of the Endangered Species Act, we're lucky here in Colorado to have so many of those animals living in our state. So what kind of responsibility do we have and in your experience um, with CPW to keep these animals surviving for generations to come? So for the last 20 years of my career with the agency, I was one of our species conservation coordinators. And in that role, um, I was the state lead, you might say, for a number of different state and federally listed species. And that it's a it's a very interesting role for for individuals and for for the agency. Um, as many people probably know, the Endangered Species Act is a federal law. And once something becomes, once a species becomes listed under the Endangered Species Act, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has kind of management responsibility for it. But the states are still engaged in that management. And so that's where roles like the one I was in, we um, would interact with the Fish and Wildlife Service, we would interact with the other states within the range of the species that was listed, and we would try to do our best and put as much effort for the from the agency into recovery of that species as we could. So very interesting work. There's a lot of um, great species out there with work being done on them, and it's it's very fulfilling work as well. Because these species are so rare, 
we don't really see them in our day-to-day life. I mean, if you're living in Colorado your entire life, you may never come across a boreal toad or a black-footed ferret. But you, on the other hand, you get to work with them up close and personal. You get to know a lot of personalities of these animals. Do you have any particular favorites? <laughs> I have so many favorites. Um, yeah, over my career, I worked with both the boreal toad and um, and the black-footed ferret. Since I've been retired, I have actually forgotten the number of endangered species we have in the state. But um, they're, they are really interesting creatures, and, and they've all been put on the list for very different reasons. And so, yes, it is one, it is a, something that the public may not be as aware of what species in the state are listed and where they can actually see them or how they can see them. There are also species that have been on the list for for years and um, maybe have been brought off the list that people see all the time. Things like the bald eagle was on the list for a number of years. And and so when people would see it, it was, you know, it was a bit more common than people would expect. So, but yes, the the boreal toad was a super fun species to work with um, for about 10 years. And then for about the last 10 years of my career, I was working with the black footed ferret, which even as um, the biologists and the people out there in the field working with them, it's still very difficult to find them. There's there's not a lot in the state or within the range, um, but being able to be out on the releases, that's it's such an amazing experience to go out and actually put an endangered species back out in the wild where it belongs um, and hope that the recovery, the recovery efforts actually lead to successful populations. Tina, I'm just curious, you know, there's also state endangered and state threatened, uh, you know, species. And, you know, how hard does um, CPW and um, folks who have been in a position like yours, you know, work to make sure those animals don't rise to the level where they do get petitioned to be federally endangered? And how much work goes into all those state threatened and endangered species uh, to make sure that they don't rise to the level of needing that federal protection? Yeah, I think that's one of the great things about the state wildlife agencies. Colorado Parks and Wildlife and the other 49 agencies across the the country. Here in the U.S., uh, wildlife management typically falls to the states individually, and it's only when something becomes listed or in a few other examples where federal management comes in. And so it is the responsibility of each individual state to keep those species thriving to to keep them from needing that federal listing. And so I think CPW is a great example of we we try to keep the common species common and and we do that through a number of, of, of different ways. The best example is the state wildlife action plans that most states across the country have. Here in um, Colorado, it addresses the federally listed species as well as the state listed species. And it identifies what are the threats and what are the actions that need to be taken for those different species. And so it's a way that we can keep those species from becoming endangered, from becoming federally listed. And one of the ways I would always describe it and the way I would always think about it is once something becomes federally listing, listed, we at the state level have in some ways kind of failed that species. We have we have let it get bad enough that it needs that extra protection that we weren't giving it. And so it was it was a, a a real important thing for me personally throughout my career to kind of to try to keep those species from needing that federal protection. Um, you know, it's it's we're doing this the mission of the agency. We're doing it for the people of the state and its visitors, and it's a, it's an important thing to keep those species out there. Um, to be able to go out on a hike and 
um, up at 10,000 feet and see boreal toads in a pond breeding or, you know, be lucky enough to spot a bald eagle or a, a black-footed ferret or all of the other different listed species across the state. What's the feeling for your work when you do see a species that was previously listed, uh, you know, get downgraded and be delisted? I know in the state, uh, we'll, you know, we'll still consider it um, a species of special concern or whatnot. But um, when you see an, uh, a species that you've worked with go from being, you know, federally endangered um, and be delisted, just what what is the feeling amongst you and your peers uh, in a moment like that? I, it's, it's a little hard for me to answer that question, I'll say, because none of the species that I specifically worked on have ever actually gone through that process. Um, but to, you know, what I can speak to is like with, with ferrets, when we were out there doing the ferret releases and, you know, and, and engaging the additional landowners and engaging the additional, additional sites and really making progress towards federal recovery um, for that species, it's, it's a bit of a, a feeling of um, accomplishment that you know we're actually making a difference, and in, in a lot of ways, the things that are done with endangered species are kind of behind the scenes, and we don't see it. We right now in the state have a very public um, process and and event going on with an endangered species, but generally, this is work that a lot of people don't realize the agency does, and it's it's kind of behind the scenes. And I think it's great that that you guys are um, covering it on the podcast as well. But um, you know, it's it's kind of the nuts and bolts of of management and kind of getting to that point where one, we know what the issue is and how to address it. And then two, we can find the resources and the ability to actually address it and, and get those species back out where they belong and and put that that fog back in the wheel and, and be able to let the system kind of readjust to having that that species back out there. So Tina, with it being nuts and bolts and behind the scenes in the agency, how can we and the general public be good stewards to these species that have seen their population numbers dwindle? Yeah, that's it's a great question. And some of it is very simple. Some of it is is you know, for species in that are more comfortable around humans to, you know, have native plants in your garden, have not use pesticides, watch how much water we use for those species that depend on water. Um, you know, there's a number of species across the country right now that are dealing with climate issues. And so anything we as the public can do to address some of the, the climate problems out there. Um, boreal toads are an interesting example because it's a, it's an interesting, it's an introduced disease that they're dealing with. So not bringing um, non-native species into the country, not, not transmitting um, things, weeds and, and diseases and stuff into areas. Um, if we're going to go out in, in areas that we might be dealing with a disease, um, making sure we're decontaminating when that's appropriate. And an example of that might be the the um, handful of bat species that are being considered for federal listing right now because of white nose syndrome. So if if we're interested in going underground into caves and, and that sort of thing, making sure that we're decontaminating. So there's just a lot of things we can do around our, our homes and in our, our hobbies and interests that make sure we don't cause a problem for the species. 
Now, you, you kind of hit on that, you know, not a lot of people know uh, maybe that this is part of what we do at, at Colorado Parks and Wildlife. And um, one of the things that continues to inspire me every day, I'm constantly learning different aspects of what CPW does, an organization of almost a thousand employees. You know, I had no idea, um, you know, how much work went into all the research programs, land use, energy, uh, the water section, um, all these different kind of jobs. Uh, I think a lot of people typically think of us and, you know, they see your your state park rangers when they visit a park or maybe they encounter a district wildlife manager when uh, they've got an issue going on in their neighborhood with a bear or a deer or something like that, or uh, maybe getting checked during hunting season. For you, like what led you down your career path and what made you kind of inspired to pursue, you know, species conservation out of being, you know, a district wildlife officer? Yeah, so I, I started with the agency as one of our district wildlife uh, managers in, in the Boulder South District. It was a, a great spot and um, very fun, very interesting. Um, got to do a lot of different activities, um, you know, never, never, never a dull moment. And then the opportunity came up to get into the species conservation role. And I jumped at that. I, I had had an experience in college um, that had kind of moved me from, I entered college as pre-med. I thought I wanted to be a doctor and I, it had moved me into wanting to work with animals, wanting to work with wildlife in particular, and um, really led me towards the idea of working with threatened and endangered species, that there, it was some interesting readings I had done, some some learning about the issues that species face and and some of the things that have happened even within my lifetime, you know, reading about species that have, have in essence gone extinct or gotten to the point of um, needing this Herculean effort to bring them back. Uh, the Blackfooted ferret is a great example. I mean, within my lifetime, we thought they were extinct. And so to be able to be engaged in bringing them back is, is really remarkable. And for that to be something I could do as an actual career, you know, it's, it's something that I think a lot of people don't, don't think about when they think about our agency, they think about, well, I, I need to be those, those front facing people. And we have such amazing front facing people, our district wildlife managers, our park managers, um, and park rangers, our front desk people that people that the public interacts with all the time are, are just amazing. But I think it's also truly remarkable what happens behind the scenes of the agency. Like you mentioned, our researchers are doing some amazing work. One of the one of the examples I always like to use is we would not be where we are with black-footed ferrets if it wasn't for plague management, because that's one of the main issues that the ferrets are facing um, at this moment. And some of the research that occurred to develop new plague management tools happened within our research section. And so um, states within the full range of the Blackfooted Ferret are actually using that research that's happened within CPW. So it's it's really, really remarkable. And, you know, when I think back to chasing snakes as a little kid and getting yelled at for that, or, um, you know, all the really random things I did growing up as a tomboy, I, you know, for that to all feed into where I ended up with as a career was um, pretty amazing. Okay, so you were one of those kids who was always in the backyard, you see a lizard or a snake or something, and you just got to go touch it. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, and then I spend most of my career telling people don't touch the wildlife. Um, but 
I think one of the, the amazing things that CPW has recognized is we do actually have a law that says you can go touch very, very common um, reptiles and amphibians because we know that's what kids do. That's, you know, you you pick up the frog or you play with the snake. And yes, that's exactly what I did. And I come from a long line of people really afraid of snakes. So we're not quite sure how that gene snuck in for me, but yes. Tina, uh, was there a specific, you know, you mentioned doing some readings um, or, you know, hearing about some uh, animals that were really kind of in need of help and that kind of drawing you to that. Was there a specific reading or specific species itself that really had you, you know, kind of fired up uh, that, you know, I want to be, you know, part of this mission? There was there. Yes. Yes and no. So there was um, there was a reading in a class in college, and I'm not going to remember the the specific details, but it involved um, the kind of idea that some wildlife would actually eat certain plants or or do certain things to treat themselves. They, you know, we see it with our dogs. Our dogs have an upset stomach. They stomach. They go out and eat some grass, um, and that really made me think of the wildlife is trying to deal with this and, you know, how can we help them? Um, I also read a, a book at one point about the grouse-like bird that uh, used to live in the Northeast and went extinct while management was trying to happen around it. And to actually see something decline while you're actually trying to come up with how to deal with it. That was, that was one of those um, nightmare scenarios that, I think really kind of galvanized me to um, take action and, and help work to move um, species recovery forward with, with a number of my species. But when you're in a field that has such tangible results, your success and failures um, are, are really visible, you know, so you have to feel good to see actions and plans that you're putting into place have a positive effect on what you're trying to save. Yes, yes, exactly. But I think it's also, you know, we we see overnight um, stars, you know, uh, songwriters or actors that all of a sudden break onto the, the stage and you think, oh, my God, this is where this is amazing. They just, you know, just like that, they are accomplishing everything they wanted to accomplish, but we don't realize how much happened behind, you know, when we were behind the scenes, when we, when we work on an endangered species, there's so many meetings, so much planning, so much that happens before we get to that step where we go, okay, we're able to implement this and we're able to um, make these big actions. And like an example would be with black-footed ferrets, you know, there's, there's decades of work that can go into actually doing a release. And, you know, if it weren't for the 30 plus years of work that had happened from finding those, um, that last population outside of Matitsi, Wyoming, to us putting ferrets out on the ground in 20, the fall of 2013, if it hadn't been for that work that had happened in those 30 years, we wouldn't have been able to do it. So it's, there's so much that happens behind the scenes and there's so many days where you're like, oh my God, another meeting. Um, but it's all those things that add up to the success of opening a cage or um, seeing a population thrive, um, finding a first wild born individual in the state in, you know, 50 plus years, things like that. Black-footed ferrets are kind of that overnight success story because we thought that they were extinct for a long, long time. And then all of a sudden they just show up 
at this farm in Wyoming. I mean, the this is like the stuff of legends. How does that even happen? It is it is really the stuff of legends. Yes, we we did think they were extinct. We we knew of a population in South Dakota. Um, that population went away, uh, died, and then. Um, in 1981, um, a ranch dog in Wyoming brings a dead animal back to the rancher and who thinks nothing of it. And the rancher's wife looks at it and says, well, that's kind of interesting. We should maybe get that mounted, takes it to a taxidermist who says, that's a black-footed ferret and, you know, gets the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and Wyoming Game and Fish engaged and and find a population. I think it, initially they thought it was about 120 plus um, ferrets on the property and as they were monitoring it and figuring out what to do with that last population um, it starts to decline due to disease and so they were able to grab some individuals eight total that um, were brought into a breeding facility and every ferret every black-footed ferret we have in the country right now is descended from those eight individuals so in a lot of ways it is an overnight success in that we boom, we found them, they're there. But it also speaks to, it's the land management on that ranch for all the years beforehand. It's, you know, the fact that that wasn't turned into a subdivision or wasn't um, plowed up or the, you know, the prairie dogs were maintained there. There's a lot of things that went into it. And then all of the agency involvement, you know, being ready to actually see that the researchers that were ready to go out and start monitoring and knew how to do it. And then when a, a decline is seen, being able to bring them in and get them to successfully breed in captivity, you know, none of that happens overnight. It's all years and years of work and answering questions and figuring out problems and, you know, it's it's dealing with the what's the what's the issue in front of me right now how do I solve this issue so I can get to the one that's behind that and the one that's behind that and you were intimately involved in this process especially through Colorado Parks and Wildlife and, and your job and I know our, our listeners can't see this but you have a black-footed ferret stuffed animal behind you right now <laughs> I do I do. I, I I have a, a blackfooted. I actually have two back there. One's really small. Um, and then because blackfooted ferrets can't can't exist without prairie dogs over on this side, I have a prairie dog stuffed animal behind me. I mean, they're they're really just such amazing animals. And and I think anyone who worked with me for very long knew. In a lot of ways, I'm still that kid that's out there chasing those animals in the backyard because every species I work with, there's something really cool about them. And, and I just really fall in love with them. And, you know, things like the black-footed ferret, they're, they just have such a remarkable story, but they in and of themselves are just such amazing animals. They're, they're ferocious predators. They hunt things about the same size as them. Um, they can turn themselves 180 degrees. They have a very flexible spine, turn themselves 180 degrees in a prairie dog burrow. Um, you know, it's there's just so many things. If you hit them with a spotlight, which is a way to survey them at night because they're nocturnal, they're only out at night. If you hit them with a spotlight, their eyes glow an emerald green color. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, so there's, they're just remarkable. And one of my favorite facts about black-footed ferrets is they have the longest canine tooth to skull size of any mammal. 
So if black-footed ferrets were the size of a German shepherd, we would all be very, very afraid. I'm kind of afraid of them too. I, <laughs> you know, I'd seen a, a taxidermy black-footed ferret and it was uh, staged in the scene with its mouth open and attacking. And I thought it was just this cute, you know, bandit-like, you know, with the black mask going across ferret. And then you see the teeth, I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> okay, I need to take this this little creature seriously it could do do some damage yes and and the best part when we're doing releases when we were doing releases is they don't like being around people the the fish and wildlife service has done a great job um breeding and and um preparing these animals for release and they don't like being around us and when when you're carrying them in a kennel out to a prey dog burrow to let them go they let you know they have a very loud chitter sound and they are more than happy to try to um, scare you away and I've seen more than one individual jump when they turn around coming out of the the carrier and try to figure out where that big hand came from. So they're, they really are a, a species to be respected. And I think even more so now because they, you know, they went through that huge bottleneck. They've been through so much and to still have that tenacity and still want to make a go at it and um, try to recover, help us recover their populations. When we put them out there, they, they get right to being a wild black-footed ferret again. We've had um, many um, young ferrets born in the wild in Colorado, and that's when you really start to feel the success, when you can see those litters of kits out there, and, and mom has done what she was meant to do, and, um, you know, they, they're running around the prairie dog town and just being a part of the system that they belong in. For, you know, the listeners who maybe haven't watched so many of our great ferret videos that we have that I can't get enough of um, every time we have a release and I get to watch some of those, you know, what's being done behind the scenes to keep the, this population uh, going? Um, you know, what does it take to increase their numbers? Yeah, the, the there's there's so much. It's a huge um a huge group behind the scenes, both within Colorado Parks and Wildlife with the Fish and Wildlife Service, and then also with um, all the other states and partners in the program. Um, it's everything from there's seven or eight different um, zoo partners that um, help with the captive breeding. So they have ferrets within the zoo systems that are off exhibit and they breed them every spring to produce animals um, for release. And then there's the disease researchers, there's researchers looking at many other questions that we're still trying to figure out in the ferret world. There's all the different state agencies that are putting their time and effort into identifying release sites, managing um, sites that ferrets have been put out on. Um, and then the other thing, especially here in Colorado, is we worked a lot with um, the private landowners because a lot of our prairie dog acres that we need to put ferrets into are still privately held ranches. And so working with those private landowners to figure out what is the best way to put ferrets back on their property in a, in a way that actually doesn't impact their their um, business, their agricultural production on that land. And um, all of that includes things like plague management and going out every year and, and dusting burrows or putting out um, vaccine baits, um, landowner incentives. Um, you know, there's just 
just so many different steps behind and so many different people behind um, each of those activities. And that's just one species. That's just ferrets. You know, they, we had the same thing going on with um, bald eagles and a number of the different, the uh, black rail and the lesser prairie chicken. And there's just so many different species that we we work with across the state that there are these large groups of, of people, managers, researchers, that are behind the scenes kind of making sure that those programs still move forward and we answer the questions and do what's best for the species. You mentioned zoos helping, you know, raise some of these um, young in captivity. Uh, Another species you've worked a lot with is the boreal toad. I got a chance to go out with the Denver Zoo folks and some of our Southwest region staff and aquatic staff and stock out some boreal toad tadpoles that they actually uh, raised at the Denver Zoo last summer, um, way up above Pitkin, um, Colorado, and uh, really just amazing to see this habitat for toads way up at, you know, 13,000 feet uh, in the remote mountains, but it seems like it really does take a lot of partners all working together, whether it's zoos or nonprofits. Uh, what can you just say about the the partnership that it takes to uh, you know recover some of these species like the toad and the partnership with the Denver Zoo? Yeah, the the partnerships. I mean, Colorado Parks and Wildlife is amazing. Um, we have amazing people, but none of this work can be done just by us, um, just by the the agency. Um, and, and part of that is just, it takes so many people, it takes so many resources to, to work on each of these individual species. And one of the things I, I love about all the zoo partners um, is, you know, they're, they're not getting paid to do this. This is, this is something that the zoos, which are in most cases, not-for-profit agencies that are just doing because that's what they want to do. That's what their mission leads them to do. Most of the zoos that that we're working with have have a mission to educate the public about all these wildlife species, but then also help the public, help the species just like we do, just like Parks and Wildlife has, is that mission to to manage these species and do the best they can. Um, And Boreal toad um, releases are amazing. I used to always say that the if you want to identify boreal toad habitat, it is the most gorgeous mountain habitat you can imagine. Beaver ponds in a meadow, you know, with peaks around you. It's that's ideal boreal toad habitat. And so working with the different partners and and the zoos. The other thing, just as a side note, the zoos are also great partners other ways with more common species and even non-native species. Um, We had some law enforcement situations that involved a lot of venomous snakes, and we called in the Denver Zoo because they work with venomous snakes a lot more than, than our staff does. And you know, ask them to come help us out with that situation. And they, you know, everyone safely dealt with many not great individual snakes and um, no one was injured, no snakes or humans were injured in the process. And so, you know, having these interactions and and these connections with the zoo partners and the other NGO partners um, is, is just vital to the work that we do. Can you walk us through what a release of boreal toads looks like because the the black-footed ferret releases are done on on prairies on flat kind of remote lands but how do we get up to alpine lakes with these toads how does that work it's been 10 plus years since i've been out on one but um back when i was doing it and i'm pretty sure it's still the same and, and john can probably speak to when he was doing it more recently but 
Yeah, it's, you know, ideally you're going to a pond that's somewhat near a road, but that doesn't necessarily always happen. And so we had a number of situations where we would meet at a parking lot at a trailhead and we would load pad poles up in bags of water and put the bags of water in backpacks and everyone would, you know, cautiously hike up. You don't want to jostle your backpack too much, hike up to whatever the lake is. And just like, you know, anyone who has a fish tank in their in their house, you have to temper the water and make sure that you're not dumping them in a, a drastically different um, water temperatures. So a lot of these high elevation lakes are chilly, so we might have some ice packs in with them. Um, I know there's been a couple of times we've used horses to actually get them into sites if it's a longer hike, pack them into the, the um, saddlebags on a horse. We just have lots of different ways. And I think it's also one of those things within the agency. Um, I don't know that we've ever used our fish stocking planes to, to stock some boreal toads, but that would definitely be a possibility. Um, you know, it's it's something that could could potentially be done. So there's lots of different ways to do it. And and it's another example of needing a lot of people. If you're hiking in, you know, I don't know, a couple thousand tadpoles, you probably need 10 to 15 backpacks to do that. So that's 10 to 15 people willing to hike however long um, it is to get to that pond. Yeah, there's nothing like putting 40 pounds worth of, uh, you know, tadpoles in your backpack and uh, and walking up there uh, you know, with a, a full pack of water. It's a pretty crazy experience. But, you know, you mentioned uh, how remote um, these locations are uh, where these tadpoles or where these boreal toads, you know, do exist. What makes the boreal toad such a special species? I mean, I just would have never even thought about seeing a toad in some of these, you know, high alpine locations. And I think that's exactly what makes it special is boreal toads, they're, they're an amphibian. And so that's an, an individual that is hatched as an egg in a pond and then metamorphs into a, a toad or a frog. And, and this all has to happen in water, not nice. And this is an, a species that has decided, has evolved to breed above 8,500 feet. And um, historically, we had a number of breeding sites that were above 12,000 feet. Anyone who's been hiking up at those elevations knows we don't have water. We don't have flowing water, fresh water, non-frozen water in those sites for much of the year. And so, you know, boreal toad males um, will wake up from hibernation in the spring, sometimes crawl across snow. And these are, remember, cold-blooded ectothermic animals, crawl across snow to get to the pond so that they are there when the water opens up and the females show up and they can they can breed. And then those eggs are laid, tadpoles hatch, and they have to metamorph before that pond freezes back over. And that's a that's a rough life some years. I mean, we we have some late springs and we have some early falls, and that's not necessarily enough time to make all that happen. Um, but they're just remarkable little animals. I mean, they have they have done they have done this for a very long time at those elevations and they're an important part of that ecosystem like i said earlier i always know something really weird about all my species and when i was working with toads one of the things i always told people is they smell like peanut butter 
They're in the, the toad family where they produce a toxin from behind their eyes, from a gland behind their eyes. And if you've ever seen your dog pick up a toad and foam at the mouth, it's that toxin. And in boreal toads, to me, it smells like peanut butter. You mentioned them being so important in the landscape for me as somebody who grew up in Colorado. It's, you know, it's part of Colorado's story. It's part of our history. It's part of our natural lands that we want to preserve for, for future generations. You know, why put so much effort for some little toads that, you know, exist like way up there? What makes a species like that so special and what makes it part of Colorado's story? I think that's exactly it. I mean, all of these native species belong here. And if we're losing them because of something we as humans have done, that's that's not right. That's not fair. And so, you know, they they belong here. We may not understand why they belong here. You know, boreal toads eat insects. They get eaten by other things. And if we lose that that link in the food chain, what's going to be the issue with the insects on one side or the the predators that eat the toads on the other. What's what's going to be the problem there? Um, same with black-footed ferrets that, you know, they are kind of in that middle of the food chain. They're eating the prairie dogs that eat the grass, and then they get eaten by bigger things than them. So if we lose that piece, what's, what's going to be the problem that we create there. There's a, a quote out there, and I'm I'm really bad at remembering them exactly, but it's you know save all the pieces. the The wise tinkerer saves all the pieces, and I think when we're when we're looking at these ecosystems, every species that's been in it historically is all the pieces, and so we don't know if that one that we let go, if that's going to be the one that causes the big issue. Tina, do you have a favorite species that you work with? No. <laughs> um, they all are my favorite species. I I really I think back on, you know, the the 26, 20, however many, many, many years I worked with the agency. And I there's really no species that I don't think back on kindly. I don't think back and kind of chuckle about something, you know, being being chased by a deer wrapped in a hammock. Um, being, you know, chasing raccoons out of a, an office, you know, there's just so many things and they're, they're all just so amazing. I mean, in the later years um, of my career, I spent a lot of time with black-footed ferrets and I really do love the ferrets. They're really remarkable little creatures, but then also the prairie dogs they, they depend on. I mean, prairie dogs are amazing and they support so many species. And then I also spent a lot of time um, more recently learning about bats and bats are truly remarkable. And you know, some of the stuff that happens in the bat world is like, we just can't even wrap our brains around some of it. But, but then also, you know, think about some of the snake species that give live birth. And so you've got, in essence, pregnant snakes running around all summer. And so it's, there's just so many fun species. I, I, I can't pick one. I mean, if I had a nickel, every time I've thought of myself as a pregnant snake, I mean, <laughs> But these these are real, I mean, kind of creepy, crawly things that you're you're dealing with. How do you kind of break down the barriers for people who are afraid of snakes, who don't really want to learn anything about bats? I, you know, and and that's the thing. I I 
I've always kind of tended towards the, the less cute. And I think part of the way I would always talk with the public or or do an education program is just, you know, what what you all can see here behind me, the the podcast listeners can't, but the stuffed animals. You know, I did a lot of of snake presentations where I was talking about here's the importance of snakes and here's how to deal with them. And I have, I don't have them here handy. I had a three foot long fluorescent green toy stuffed snake. And, you know, when you pull them out of the box, there's a lot of people who are like, <gasps> and it's like, no, I'm, it's, it's a toy. And let's talk about it as a toy. And, you know, there's, and I think also knowing those, those fun things about the species, you know, I was, I was talking with a family member one time about bats and they kind of had that reaction that a lot of the public has of bats. They're, you know, they're creepy and they're out at night and they, you know, your hair and this and that. And I'm like, and they eat mosquitoes. And I was, I grew up in an area with a lot of mosquitoes. And, and I said that to the family member and they're like, wait, what? (laughs) How do I put up a bat house? How do I, how do I get rid of some of these mosquitoes? You know, so there are good things about all these species if we can get past the um the look of them or the the stories we've been told about them over time that has to be really important too for kids to to understand wildlife to be interested in these sorts of things because the i mean they're going to be the cpw generation you know in in a couple of years so um what have you tried to do to get more of the the kids interested in this career path. Yeah, I one of the things I always enjoyed in my career was talking to talking to the public and especially talking to kids. I think partly it's because I approach the world much like a 5-year-old. Um but you know having conversations with kids and finding that again that one thing that's going to connect with them. Um I used to have a an ornate box turtle, which is a, a native um, turtle to Colorado that I would take if I was I was talking to kids. And one time in a classroom, she decided to pee. And I think every kid in that classroom now wants to be a turtle biologist because the while I was holding the turtle, she peed in the classroom and they thought that was the most spectacular thing they'd ever seen. But also, you know, when I talk about bats and, you know, be with with young kids and and tell them that bat poop sparkles. And, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of bat, future bat biologists out there now who are like, wait a second, um, bat poop sparkles. That's pretty amazing. So, you know, just kind of connecting them and, and getting people to think about what is in their backyard that, you know, we don't, we don't have to hike up to 10,000 feet to see a really interesting animal here in I live in the Denver area and in my backyard every summer I get a garter snake and so you know just being able to go out into your backyard and see what's out there see the birds at at the feeders or using the trees and see the snakes in the grass and and hear the frogs um on a on a summer evening or um you know this time of year go out in the morning and listen to the geese um moving from where they sleep at night to where they're going to spend the day and eat and, you know, just asking that question of, well, why do I hear them every morning? And where, why are they always going the same way? And where are they going to? And, you know, what's the story of that goose? Um, and where do they spend the rest of the year when they're, when they're not flying over my house in the morning in the fall? So just kind of making those connections. I, I don't think we can gloss over the fact that bat poop sparkles. Um, 
I think I, I need to hear why. <laughs> why is that? Well, and I think that's the that's the question that's always that's always fun. And I try to get people to ask is the why. I was that kid that, you know, said why way too often. Um, it probably was my first word. Um, so bats eat bugs and the out bugs have exoskeletons. And most of the time, exoskeletons are shiny. So when you eat something shiny and you break it down, those exoskeletons are hard. They're like our fingernails. And so they're not something that the bats actually digest. They just break down into little pieces and they come out in bat poop. And so that's what you're seeing in the sparkly bat poop is insect exoskeletons. I mean, that's amazing. I, I think if you would have told me that as a young girl, maybe that would have helped <laughs> when it came to bats. Yeah, it's it's one of the highlights of most biologists' careers, how often you play with, with wild poop. <laughs> Tina, um, you know, I was talking with Kara a little bit before the show, and she mentioned that originally you kind of planned on getting into the world of education. It seems, you know, you've obviously been able to provide us with uh, quite a bit of education over the last like 40 minutes. It seems like that still was a huge part of your job while you're at CPW was still getting out, talking to classrooms, but um Kind of just how do you see yourself as uh, an educator, even though um, you kind of went into the world uh, of of CPW? I think working in in this field, especially working with species that most people don't know anything about, it's one of the first things we have to do is educate. And whether that's the public, like why is CPW spending money to um protect blackfooted ferrets and, and reintroduce blackfooted ferrets? Why is CPW spending money and resources to put boreal toads out there? Kind of getting the public to understand that, getting others within the agency and other agencies to understand that um, is important. And so there's that level of education. But if the public doesn't understand what we do, if the public doesn't um, support or appreciate what, what we do with wildlife, then we're not going to be doing it for very long. So, you know, being able to make those connections and being able to get our constituents, our the people that we are meant to support, um, the the residents and visitors of Colorado, to get them to understand what it is we're doing and why we're doing it and why it's important. Um, it's it's one of the I'd say one of the most important things we do in in our in our positions. And so the way I would always kind of approach it is not as a lecture, just as a, well, let's ask why. Let's ask, let's let's find something interesting and let's let's delve into the what's going on there and how can we make this connection for you? Um, how can we also help you appreciate what Colorado has? Um, I, like many in the state, wasn't born here. I moved in and never left. And Colorado is really a remarkable, remarkable place. And to be able to fully appreciate that, I think it's, it's more than just the culture and the sports and the food. And it's also getting out. It's the fresh air. It's the hearing the birds. It's the, you know, seeing the ponds and, and what lives there. And, you know, noticing that little creature when you're out on a hike and then asking the question of, well, what was that? And how do I learn more about it? Well, Tina, what do you want to be remembered for both within CPW and with your work with these endangered species? What kind of impact would you like to leave for the rest of us? 
Yeah, I, I'd say my goal, and it's it's my goal was always to leave things a little bit better, to keep the the ball moving forward and to just leave it a little bit better than when it was given to me. Because, you know, Carrie, you mentioned we're celebrating 50 years of the Endangered Species Act. You know, last year we celebrated 125 years of the agency. And so there's been a lot of people doing this. And I I picked up the ball on these species from someone else who picked it up from someone before them. And it's now been handed off to some to a new person. And so being able to leave it in a better situation than when I was given it and let that person have the the resources and the information they need to keep moving that ball forward um you know so that in another 125 years or another 50 years under the endangered species act maybe species are we have less species on the list and you know we can go out and see these species a lot more frequently um and bump into them and it not be as remarkable as it is right now person that you hand that ball off to what is uh you think maybe the biggest challenge they're going to face or you know what are the uh, species or two that you think are um you know the utmost importance or or maybe give you the most concern uh, now that you're not um you know dealing with the hands-on on a daily basis i i think there's going to be a lot happening we didn't talk a lot about it but um i I did work with bats, and I think there's a lot happening in the bat world um, with a disease that's been brought in um, to the country and just trying to deal with that. I introduced diseases are really hard in the wildlife world. It's it's hard to get our arms around that because getting a million bats to show up at a vaccine clinic is a bit difficult. Um, so how do we actually deal with diseases in wild populations is is tough. And you know, the the problem in species conservation work is there's always a new threat around the corner that we, we can't see. And so being able to keep our eye on what we're doing right in front of us, but then also what's that next thing that might be coming and how do we keep from causing more problems by how we're treating this issue right in front of us. Um, it's And it's also a, a position that the the work really never goes away. Um, we are going to continue doing the ferret work. We're going to continue doing the bat work. We're going to continue working with the reptiles and the amphibians and you know all the other um, species I worked with throughout my career. And we're just going to continue to have um, more things we need to do with each of those groups of species and each of those individual species. And so um, I think one of the hardest parts about the job is is staying positive and um, trying to keep moving forward and juggling. I, I always wanted to learn to juggle because I felt like I did it every day at work, um, but I actually can't physically do it. So <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's what I'll do in retirement is finally figure out how to juggle. Well, Tina, I can't let you go without asking something I like to ask every wildlife officer I encounter at some point. So you mentioned, you know, you probably encountered a few crazy stories back in your day as a district wildlife manager in Boulder. Can you give us one of the um, crazier stories uh, that you have from your days as a DWM? When you're on district, you get you get calls all the time. And we've all seen the deer 
who get tangled in things. And that's, it's a little frustrating because, you know, they're, they get tangled in our things. And, you know, we've seen the Christmas lights and you've seen the hammocks. And I got a call one morning from a gentleman um, in the Boulder area who had a deer walking through his backyard and he was very concerned about it. And we had the typical conversation of what is, what is wrapped in his antlers? And, you know, you always ask, is it under the chin? Can they still eat? Can they move? Um, things like that. And so in those conversations, I said, well, what is, what is wrapped in his antlers? And he said, well, he got into someone's um, clothesline. And I said, well, is it, you know, is it something small? And he goes, well, it's a bra. The deer has gotten a bra wrapped in his antlers. And I said, okay, um, well, is it under the chin? Can he still eat and move and things like that? And he said, no, it's just up in his antlers. And, and so then the other thing we always deal with when it comes to antlers and, and things wrapped in them is, you know, is it something that's going to fall out on its own or is it close enough to when the, the deer are going to drop their antlers that they'll just drop it and it'll be fine. And so I did have to ask a few more questions about that particular bra to find out if it was one that was going to kind of disintegrate on its own and fall out or if the deer would be okay with it for about a month longer before the antlers fell off. So it was a very fun conversation with a an individual uh, from the public that, you know, we just... Like I said, never a dull moment with the agency. But um, the other the other time that was very fun was we get a lot of um, bear calls, bears in the fall coming in to find food. And um, as I mentioned, I was in the Boulder South District, but um, for some reason we had a bear in the Denver area that they needed, the Denver officers needed some assistance with. So I came out to help and it was at the Lakeside Amusement Park. Um, it showed up before the park was opening in the morning. So we were trying to get the bear tranked out of the tranquilized out of the park um, before the park opened so that they could still open it and the public could come in and there wouldn't be an issue. So we're tracking the bear around the park. And I I haven't been to Lakeside in years. I don't know if it's still there, but they they used to have the old wooden roller coaster and the bear was underneath the wooden roller coaster. And I wasn't always the best shot, um, and we went to uh, tranquilize the bear with a with a dart, and I took a shot and hit the roller coaster instead of the bear. Um, so if anyone rode the roller coaster that day, I always wondered if it was a little sluggish from the tranquilizer. So. But just so many fun things, so many, you know, just honestly, never a dull moment. Um, I, I always laughed. My husband would hear the other side of many calls and be like, what was that one about? That was just weird. And yeah, it was great. It was, it was, a, it was a great time. I, I really could not have imagined a better career, a uh, better place to work and um, better coworkers over the years. So yeah. When wildlife collide with, with humans, inventions it just seems like uh you know wonder what things were like so many years ago before uh you know we were so so into wildlife habitat and they were running into all these things it's uh i wonder if it's as entertaining for for them sometimes as as, as it is for us when we see some of the stuff that happens but tina i just want to personally thank you for taking some time out even though you're retired now to come back and join us on the show and for just giving a voice to all these species that uh, you know, don't have that traditional voice amongst some of the, you know, more popular wildlife species that you always see. Uh, just really appreciate all your work. 
Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for for um, having this conversation. I think it's it's a great conversation and keep up the good work. Well, Kara, I just want to thank you as well for joining the show. We got so many fun facts out of Tina. Now we know bat poop sparkles. I don't know what you're going to do with that with the rest of your day, but uh, I'm going to take that and tell everybody I know. Yeah, I mean, I kind of want to smell a boreal toad now. Is is that weird? I want to smell that peanut butter odor that Tina talked about. Um, but besides all the, the fun facts that she shared with us, I think there's also a really great message there, which is to leave something better than you found it, you know? pass something on to the next generation. No question. We're going to take up uh, what, what Tina started and uh, continue to just inform the public about what's going on with some of these species. Uh, it's just uh, such a great story to share. So Kara, thanks again for joining the show. And uh, hopefully we'll have you on as another co-host again here soon. That'd be great. Thank you for having me. Well, along with thanking Kara and Tina, I just want to go ahead and thank all the listeners out there who have been finding us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you like to stream your shows. We've really enjoyed bringing the show back here at the end of 2023, and we've got a lot of special stuff coming your way in 2024.